Good morning. It is good to be together. I was thinking as we were singing together and considering God's Word together, what a special time this is in our week. There really is nothing else in all the world like it. God's people gathered for this one purpose of giving Him glory and honor, the only one who is worthy of glory and honor. People from all across the area, uh, people from all across the country with our college students joining us and coming together, setting this side a time amidst our busy schedules in order to worship and to serve and give honor and glory to our God. I would be so grateful to share with anyone interested more about the work of our gospel partner, Timothy and Ivy Sedu in Ghana, God is at work. And it's a privilege to partner with them and to see God doing things that we can only credit God for doing. How he's opening doors and, and places that from a human perspective would be too hard. And God is clearly at work doing his, his mission of advancing the gospel across the world. And we're so grateful for our partner, Timothy Sadu and his, his faithfulness in discipling and raising up leaders uh, through discipleship and training to go and to plant churches and to minister Christ in those places. And then I also will give a shameless plug for coming back tonight. It's our sing, praise, and prayer service from 5 to 6 o'clock tonight. And we'll also be giving a very brief uh, testimony about our time in New York City. Uh, so my family and two other families in the church were in New York City. We actually took over for one of our gospel partners uh, for two weeks. And so there's a lot of humor to be enjoyed, uh, but certainly a lot of gratitude to our God for what he did and, and his grace to us in that time. We are in Psalm 78 today. Psalm 78, if you would join me there may remember last week we were in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible. And today, we're in the second longest psalm in the Bible. So, I know I'm coming back next week to see what's going to happen. Are we going to be in the third longest psalm of the Bible? I don't know, but I'm coming back for it. But today, we're in Psalm 78, so join me there. And as you're turning there, I wonder if you have ever considered what our responsibility to our children is. What is our responsibility to our children? Now, we rightly think of a parent's responsibility to feed and to clothe and to provide shelter for children. Most people would even agree that you should provide a home environment that's loving and kind. Whether we're married and have children or are married without children. If we're single or widowed in the college class, if we're male or female in the Berean class, if we're young or mature in age, God has given to us, the church body, a command to tell the next generation both of his works but also of his words. So let's begin by reading Psalm 78 together. 
We'll begin in verse 1, where the Bible says to us, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord, His might, and the wonders He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Psalm 78 is a historical psalm, and we'll see how much so as we continue to look at it today. The author is Asaph. He was a Levite and a lead musician, a music director in the service of King David. Now, the psalm describes many wonderful works God did for His people Israel. But the psalm also demonstrates the horrific consequences of God's people forgetting, rebelling, and defying Him. So, it can feel, understandably so, a bit gloomy at times. It can be a little bit uncomfortable. Yet, it's an instructive psalm because we're going to learn how God does great works for His people, how He rescues, He leads, He corrects. And he cares for his people despite their unfaithfulness to him and their short memory of his words and works. We'll see again, as we so often do throughout our Bible, God's loving faithfulness and care for his people. And what should be our response? Our response is commitment. We must have our commitment to tell the next generation the works of of God. Now, if you look at verse 1, you'll see he immediately calls us to attention. It's kind of like him saying, listen up, pay attention, because what I have to say is of great importance, and it's of great value to God's people. And we're going to be responsible. I think this is fascinating. You see here in verse 1, he's going to tell us he's going to teach us. But then we're going to find a few verses later, we're supposed to go, and we're supposed to tell, and we're supposed to teach. So he raises our curiosity right here in verse 2 where he says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Sounds kind of spooky. Dark sayings of old? What are these parables and dark sayings? Well, these are insightful observations from the past. What he does in the rest of the psalm is he goes through Israel's history and he recounts everything that God has done and who God has been for his people. And he takes from that recounting of God's work on behalf of his people, on God's care for his people and his oversight, he then takes and shows us a few lessons that we can learn. 
He tells us then, what are you supposed to tell the next generation? All that gets flushed out for us throughout the psalm. He's telling us to learn from the past. It's like saying, look at these events in history and learn from them. Look at these events in history and remember them. They're vitally important to your life. And he's going to show us in verses 9 through 67, Israel's rebellion, blatant rejection of God, and forgetfulness. Followed by God's punishment, his forgiveness, and his care for them. Just listen to how Asaph describes Israel's response to God's loving kindness to them in verses 40 and 41. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They constantly tested God and provoked the Holy One of Israel. I don't know if you've had the same thought, but oftentimes when I'm reading through the Old Testament and I see God's favor and God's forgiveness and God's mercy and his kindness to his people and his people respond with stubbornness or they question God or they doubt him or they wonder what is he doing? Who does he think he is? Or they just outright rebel and defy him and what he says. Perhaps you've had that same thought. These people had seen God do amazing, simply amazing things on their behalf. He rescued them from perhaps the most powerful people that they knew at the time, the Egyptians. And he did it by scourging the Egyptians with natural horse. Just think about this. Israel is in slavery in Egypt. And God's going to rescue them from that. And he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh is stubborn. And he says, I don't know who this God is, but I don't have to do what he says. And so God rains down his power to authoritatively show Pharaoh who is the Lord our God. So you have a river that runs through your city. And one day you wake up and that river is full of blood. A gruesome, breathtaking sight, I'm sure. A horrific sight. Think about how this would change the whole agricultural scene for a while, right? Bloody rivers. It's hard to even think about that, isn't it? And yet God does that and he shows his people his ability to rescue. He doesn't quit there. Locusts and grasshoppers, so many, they devour the people's crops. Talk about taking your livelihood and your, your food supply chain being messed up. That messed it up for a little while, don't you think? It, it, would, it would be rough. Uh, this is an agrarian society. This is how they, they make life work. They can't go down to their local grocery store. There might have been storehouses where some things could be stored, but these locusts and these grasshoppers were so plentiful that they come in and they totally change society as they know it. It doesn't stop there. He sends swarms of biting insects. Uh, talk about having a rough night of sleep. Imagine having these insects crawling on you. Some of you have, have told me stories of how you've experienced that. And I've been so grateful that you got to experience that. But lice and mites and those little creepy bugs that are sometimes even hard to find that make us itch and that leave those little red marks... Uh, no, thank you. He also sends destructive hail. 
And this hail would have a significant cost to their livestock and to any crops that were remaining. And then he sends the angel of the Lord to punish the Egyptians, disregard of his command to free his people. Asaph is going just point by point by point, telling us of God's work for his people and rescuing them from slavery. He then guides them with a cloud by day and fire at night. I mean, imagine what a scene that was as he's leading his people out of Egypt. How is he guiding them? How is he leading them? How is he demonstrating his presence? He's got a visible sign up in the sky for everyone to see. Nobody can mistake. This is the wonderful work and guidance and direction of our shepherd, the Lord God Yahweh. Then they come to the Red Sea. And what does he do with the Red Sea? Well, this is one of our favorite stories. If you are a child in Sunday school, you maybe even were back in on the good old days with the flannel graph boards, right? And you got to see the Red Sea parted. Uh, That was a good Sunday. And God's people walk across on dry land. God again making provision for rescue for his people. Then he gives them water. They need water. And how does he do it? He, he breaks open a rock and, and water gushes out. For all of these people, clearly the power of God is on full display. When they needed food, he made food called manna. I, again, I, I'd ask you to join me in using your imagination of you need food and you're wondering where this is going to come from. You're in a new land. You haven't had time to plant seeds and grow crops what are you going to do? And, and God answers by dropping food from heaven. I mean, that is what the text says. The food came from heaven. God is clearly providing for his people. Gives them then a new land and a new beginning. He's their provider. He's their protector. He's their deliverer. When they were unfaithful to him, he was faithful to them. And now how can that be? Don't you wonder, how could you, how could you possibly doubt and, and, and think that God is suddenly going to not care for you when you have seen point by point by point God do these amazing things? You've seen God bring pestilence of all type. You've seen God split back waters of a river you couldn't cross without a boat and walk on dry land. That's impressive power and ability. And yet, how do they respond? They respond with disobedience. Now, you sit back and you think, how can it be that God would be so patient and loving and merciful? Why would he choose to continue loving such unworthy people? The whole picture leaves us stunned and aghast at the response of evil and wickedness in humanity. But it especially leaves us stumped by the grace and the mercy and the favor of God for such an unworthy people. And it makes you ask, am I like that? Could I be acting like the Israelites did? You ever read through your your Old Testament reading and, and you see the Israelites and they're fighting with God? And they're defying God and rebelling and disobeying him right after he's done something amazing to provide and care and protect them. And you say to yourself, how can that be? Why would God love them? And why would they act like that towards him? And then that light bulb goes on. 
And you think to yourself, is that what I'm doing? Am I this stubborn? Am I rebellious? Am I choosing to see things my own way and ignoring what God has said? Have I fallen into the same trap? Have I chosen the same sin as as these people? Have I forgotten the mercy, the love, and the grace this God has given to me? One of the best motivations, perhaps the only true motivation a Christian should have for obedience to God is the love of God expressed to us on the cross. So that when God gives me a command, I'm glad to do it. This God gave all for me. If he's telling me not to do something, it's not because he's holding something back from me that's good and wonderful. Clearly, he loves me. So I will gladly trust him and respond with eager, wholehearted obedience to him. Well, Asaph has done exactly what he purposed to do. He's caused us, through recounting Israel's history, to look inward and say, is this you? Do you look like this in your relationship with God? He's using Israel's dotted past to teach us a spiritual lesson. And just like Jesus' parables, it leaves us with these questions to ask ourselves. The history and these commands of God, Asaph says in verse 3, we have heard and we have known them. Now we heard them and we learned them from the previous generation. They took the time to tell us these glorious deeds of the Lord, his might and the wonders he has done. And now we, the people of God, young and old, Single and married, with or without children, men and women were told to tell the same glorious deeds of God, his might, and the wonders he has done to the next generation. So our first commitment is to tell the next generation these glorious works of God. Can't you just see the bedtime stories, right? Like you're you're tucking in um, your, your child in Israel and you're recounting to them the Red Sea story, where God parts that Red Sea and he rescues his people. We give that goodnight kiss, tell them we love them, squeeze them tight, and off they go with a smile on their face to sleep, right? That's what Asaph is saying. Declare the wonderful, glorious works of God to the next generation. And when they're afraid, you know, mom or dad's taking them aside and saying, hey, look, I was afraid too when we were in Egypt. I wasn't sure how we were going to get out of that. It was slavery. It was torture. It was hard. I didn't know where the rescue or deliverance would come from. And mom or dad says to them, but God proved his faithful love to us. You can trust him while you're afraid right now. He knows your needs. He's provided for them before you could even think about it. God is our rescuer. So our first commitment is to tell the next generation the works of God. And in verse 5, we have our second commitment. Our second commitment is to tell the next generation the words, the words of God. If we look at verse 5, the Bible says, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. God has given his words to us. 
It's instructive to us that God has given us his written, revealed word. It shows us God wants a relationship with us. But it means we have to do something with these words. We have to know them. We have to love them. We have to live them. And we know his word is filled with commands, principles, and realities about who he is, how we have a relationship with him, and how he interacts with us in his created world. We accept the Bible as God's word through our relationship with Jesus Christ. In verse 5, the word testimony is God telling us about himself and his world. It's his own testimony of himself and his world. It's the self-revelation of God. What is he like? Who is he? Law is the same word used in the book of Exodus to refer to the Torah or the first five books of our Bible. It's God's instruction for his people. And so our commitment as parents of children, but also as members of this body of believers, is to tell the next generation God's revelation of himself, his world, and his instruction to us of how to live in his world. Now, the Bible is clear that parents are primarily responsible to teach God's works and truth to the next generation. Of course, the church body holds the responsibility to care for spiritual orphans or those whose parents have not embraced Christ and to care for parents and their children within our church body. Proverbs 31 provides an example of a mother teaching her son God's truth and wisdom for how to live life. Deuteronomy 6, Moses, God's leader, speaks to the people of Israel and he says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, this is not first and foremost a, a way that you can get your parents to allow you to write on your hands or your arms or whatever. Okay, so if you're reading this as, as a youth and you're thinking, ha ha, there's biblical proof and I can mark on my body, this is not the place to go. That's not what's going on here. What this is doing is telling us parents bear this most sacred privilege of teaching God's words and ways to their children. Think about it. Sitting in your house, as much as you like us, you probably don't want us all sitting in your house. And when you wake up in the morning, I'm not sure, even though you love us and we love you, I'm not sure you want to see us when you wake up every morning. Or right before bed, I mean, that would be a lot of people to say goodnight to. Am I wrong? And so you probably aren't thinking that what this command is to is to the church body. It's very clearly to parents. You're in the home. You're there when they wake up. You're there when they go to sleep. You're there in the midday sun. You're there when you sit down together. You're living daily life together. And I want to encourage you most of all not to see this as dull, dreary, heavy duty. 
This is glorious privilege. And it's also a command. It is glorious privilege to be able to be the one to influence your children for Jesus Christ. To take this word of God and to instill it in them as you go about running your errands. As you get stuck in traffic. As you experience that flat tire. As they experience defeat and victory in their life. You get to be the one to point them to Jesus Christ in their sorrows and in their greatest successes. You get to be the one to help them see all of life through the lens of this sacred book that God tells you to live by as well. And sometimes what's hard for parents is that very first part, verse, first sentence in verse 6. This is what he says. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. This requires something of me as a parent. It's like one dad told me, I guess this means that I'm really going to have to know God's word myself first. Because I can't teach what I don't know, can I? And that's exactly right. Other parents have come and said, I'm just terrified. What happens if I mess up my kid? And I say, what's going to happen if you don't teach them God's truth. God gives us this as a command, but he gives this to us as a sacred privilege. The fact that our kids get to learn with us in this environment is a wonderful, wonderful privilege. Does it mean that there won't be a few moments of having to talk and guide and and gently remind we're actually in a service and you shouldn't be doing that right now? No, those things are going to happen. Does it mean that I'm going to have to work to teach them how to listen and how to respond and participate in a right way? Of course, but I want to be the one to do that, to show them the glories of our God, to teach them of his words and what he says and why it's a joyous privilege for me to do those things. They get to watch us in this service. People from all age groups, they get to watch us Give wholehearted effort in praising and worshiping God. They get to hear us talk about his goodness and his grace and his work. In life groups, I just so encourage you to take the wonderful privilege and opportunity it is to participate in a life group where you are learning the word of God together. Our children don't need to be taken out of those times. You say, but what if they distract We'll be learning and living in Christian community the very words of God to us. We'll be living out the biblical reality that we are a family of God joined together by the glorious work of Jesus Christ. And together, it doesn't matter your age, your marital status. None of that matters. You get to talk about the greatness of our God, His works, and his words to the next generation. There's nothing like it. So it all starts with you as the parent having God's words on your heart. Likewise, in the New Testament, Ephesians 6 verse 4 shows us the responsibility of parents teaching and training their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here, it specifically speaks to fathers. Paul is directly addressing fathers When he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline 
and instruction of the Lord. Now, in both Roman and Jewish society, it would be the dads who are responsible for the child's education and their training. Their behavior in public was a direct reflection on the dad. So they were responsible not just to give them instruction, but also to make sure that it was lived out in their life. And Paul, the human author here of Ephesians, he could have chosen to use the word parents in verse 4. He just did use the word parents in verse 2 when talking to children. He used moms and dads in verse 1. So he could have used parents, but he didn't. Instead, he gives to fathers this primary responsibility of teaching and training. And in this work, fathers are to avoid being domineering or dictatorial, causing their children to be discouraged or to become bitter with unrealistic and unreasonable expectations and directives. Instead, they're to teach and to train their children, not only in what God says, the instruction of the Lord, but also in how to live out that instruction in daily life. And again, I would encourage you to think through this as the wonderful privilege it really is. It's the goodness and mercy of God to allow us as parents to have this most wonderful, joyous obligation to teach our children God's truth. And you get to help them in all of these situations to see life through God's lens. You get to sit and read together the children's Explorer Bible together. You get to talk with them about what they heard in Sunday school and kids club and summer Bible club and kids on a mission. You get to talk through with them what you learned in this service and how they can grow from hearing God's word in a service like this. It's helping them understand nature and all they see in this life through the lens of the one who created them. So parents, especially fathers, are you taking seriously this responsibility to transfer the truth to your children? Have you considered how you need to grow in keeping God and his word before you so you can give it to your own family? How are you together as parents working together consistently to point your children to God in the situations of life? Have you embraced this glorious responsibility? Give them the word. Show them the greatness of our God, his glorious deeds, his power, and his works in everyday moments. What, what in life could be a greater priority than you teaching your children of our wonderful God and his work for us who are so unworthy of it? It can take as little as 10 minutes to share a passage or read a passage of scripture, to sing a song, even if you don't have an awesome voice, and to pray together with them. Ten minutes. So I, I plead with you to reconsider your schedule if you believe you are too busy to obey this commandment. And I, I am praying for you that you would consider how good and how great your God is and that would compel and motivate your eager obedience to train your children. 
Those little faces need you above all else to teach them of the marvelous God and his works for his people. So we are committed to teaching the next generation of God's works and his ways. And our goal, our goal in all of this is that the next generation would put their hope in God. Goal is that they would embrace him as their God and tell their children. Did you see this in verse 6? Asaph has already thought ahead to their children. Now you all know how this works. And I know this is going to make me sound like I'm a thousand years old. And some days I feel that way. But the reality is the children we're teaching today, the children that we see among us today, they're the next generation of leaders in our church. Have we considered how important of a responsibility but privilege that is to pass this truth along? And this isn't in the church body just the responsibility of parents. Yes, it's primarily the responsibility of parents, but everyone who is a believer and part of this church body has this responsibility. You may fulfill that responsibility in your life group. You may fulfill that responsibility by volunteering to minister in any of our, the number of children's ministries we have here. There are many other ways that you can fulfill that responsibility. But as a body of believers, we have the responsibility to transfer this truth to the next generation. Because as, as we all know, they're growing up too fast. Tomorrow will be here tomorrow. And we cannot change how fast it's coming. We can't slow time down. It always seems like it's speeding up on us, doesn't it? And so we've got to do what God has said to us here through the psalmist Asaph and transferring his truth to the next generation so that each generation would not forget who God is, what he has done, and what he has said. And we want our children to know and to love and follow God, and we have heard the testimonies of many, even in our own church body, who have been greatly influenced and affected because a children's Sunday school teacher or a summer Bible club volunteer or somebody just leading activities, right? That's just leading activities. But somebody leading activities had this, had this thought in their mind to transfer the truth to the next generation. And they took an interest in the children and they testified of God's greatness. And we can have many people here right within our own body testify that they came to faith in Jesus Christ because somebody was faithful to give them this truth. Without knowledge of God, his works, and his ways, our, our love would be mere superficiality or empty emotionalism. And you know this, as, as we learn more about God, we love him more. As we mine the depths of scripture, we grow to love and to be grateful for him more. So, I place my confidence, my trust in God, and this is our goal for the next generation, that they would put their hope their confidence, and their trust in God alone. See, what the rest of the psalm details for us is that their forefathers, their ancestors didn't do that. They didn't put their trust in God. And because of that, they had to be punished. And God had to come in and correct their behavior. And Asaph is saying, it doesn't have to be that way for the next generation. 
See, we can take this truth and as a church body, as parents, we transfer it to the next generation and they learn the words and the ways of God. They see his awesome works and they respond with putting their confidence and their trust in God. Now, we have to be careful, right? Because this isn't, this isn't um, a sure thing. It might be that a child hears the words and the ways of God and chooses as they grow older, to reject those. But God tells us simply to give them the words and the ways and the works that he has done. And he handles the results. So we want to be faithful in transferring this truth to a new generation so that they would not make the mistakes of stubbornness and rebellion and unfaithfulness and no commitment to God, but so that they would see this is a God who really is worth giving all of your heart and all of your life and all of your energy to serving. And they will see that his words and his works, they are right and they are good and they are true. And we've got this whole body of history that we can look back on and see he is a good and faithful God. So Asaph brings us to our point of conclusion, to remember. And isn't it interesting that even in the New Testament, we're called to remembrance? We're called to remembrance in the New Testament through the Lord's Supper. Remember this body that was broken for you. Remember who caused this body to be broken. Remember the joys and the works and the goodness and the greatness of God in bringing salvation to a people who are not worthy of it. Remember that you've been forgiven for all of your sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So we come to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, and we remember. And isn't that what Asaph said? We will not forget the works of God. So our commitment together is we will tell the next generation the glorious deeds of the Lord, his power, and the amazing things he has done that the next generation would know them so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commands. Let's pray together. Lord God, the privilege you've given to us in passing your truth along, it is sobering. But it also brings us great joy. We know what your truth has done in our hearts, in our minds, how it's transformed our lives. And we desire for our children in this church body to be transformed in the same way. You've graciously given us the work of teaching them of your glorious deeds, of showing them the greatness of you, our God. You have given to us the privilege of teaching them your words and your ways. And you've given to us the privilege to trust you with the results. So our God, I pray that you would work in our hearts 
to as a church body eagerly give ourselves to transferring your truth through us, your people, to the next generation, that they would put their trust in you and eagerly follow and depend on you. We look to you to do what we cannot. And we pray in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen.